Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Hey, can we welcome Nutley in New Brunswick watching online? Good to be with you guys. Thrilled you're here. And Pastor Tim and uh, Pastor Tom and I, we try to do a a message every year called Q&A in which we take your questions and try to tackle those about the, the Bible, the Christian faith, um, specifically our 40-day Bible challenge. We figured this is the perfect time. Uh, we've had over 3,000 people reading the New Testament cover to cover, and uh, some of you right now, you may be done with it. If you haven't finished, let me encourage you to push through because you will have done something the majority of Christians have actually never done, which is actually engage the New Testament cover to cover. And um, here's the deal. Uh, when I think about this, for me, mm. it's really surfaced for me how I've always read like small little sound bites in the Bible. You pick those out and say, what does that mean? Right. Or how does that apply? But reading the broad themes have really been very powerful because you see this incredible message of God's passionate pursuit of the people that he loves over time through the message of Jesus, the power of his life, death, and resurrection, the, the birth of the church, and these people giving up you know, their entire lives to follow him. Right. And it's raised a lot of questions, though, hasn't it, it Definitely. Two quickies from our life group. Yep. Uh, we had one, uh, you know, when is Jesus coming back? You yep. know, all about the second coming. And the second one was, you know, what's the deal with women in head coverings? Can women speak in church? What's up with that? <laughs> exactly, yeah. We had, you know, circumcision, you know, right. judging people outside the church. Um, so what we did is we asked you to submit your own questions uh, to 40 Day Bible Challenge. And uh, what we're going to try to do today is tackle some of the tougher ones, or at least the ones that we saw repeated multiple times mm-hmm. um, that were common to the uh, Facebook thread that we had. Absolutely, absolutely. And let me, let me tell you, here's what we want to do. We want to break this up into two specific categories, okay? The first one is Jesus and the Gospels, right? There were four eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? So that raised up a lot of questions about Jesus' teachings and such. He said a lot of radical things. The second category that we want to break this up into is Paul and his letters. You see, Paul wrote these epistles or these letters to all the local congregations, the local churches, if you will. And those things brought up, uh, you know, how do we live out this Christian thing in practical terms? Uh, you know, things like uh, circumcision and head coverings. What's that all about? Yeah, there, it always raises a lot of questions for modern believers. People are like, like, does this still apply or is this, you know, outdated? I'm going to give you a couple practical examples of how you can wrestle through that when you come to a passage in the Bible that leaves you kind of scratching your head. Absolutely. So those are the two categories we're talking about today, two broad categories, yep. Jesus and the Gospels, Paul and his letters. But before we dive in, Tim, you mentioned how you want to kind of lay down three ground rules or something like that? Yeah, I call these rules of engagement. These are just things we need to acknowledge whenever you're kind of engaging the Bible. Um, and the, I put these in your notes if you want to pull out your notes today. The first is this. Um, the Bible is inspired, but it can be confusing. Can we just acknowledge that? <laughs> yes. uh, we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, meaning it's God-breathed. It's useful for correction and teaching. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, inerrant in its original, uh, you know, manuscripts. But we have a very high view of Scripture That's why we teach from it every week, right? We believe it brings clarity and direction, God's purpose for your life. But we just have to acknowledge it can be confusing in sections, right? Can sure. I just – can someone say amen about that? <laughs> amen. There, yeah, there are parts of Romans that leave you kind of scratching your head going, what? what you what? know, weird stuff about like judging angels and sacrifices. And, <laughs> and you can kind of get lost in the weeds or not understand what you're reading. And there's a reason for that, and it's this. The Bible is not a book. It's a library. I know we always talk about, you know, the Bible's a great book. Rule of engagement number two This is actually a collection of 66 books written by over 40 different authors, 
all sorts of different genres of, of literature. We have, you know, law, poetry, sure. history, uh, you know, all of it written over thousands of years to diverse audiences. So here's the deal. The overarching theme is the same. It is about God passionately pursuing the people that he loves. But if you just, you know, read a little bit here and there, um, you know, it can be confusing to piece it all together. And that's why we chose this version of Scripture. It's the books of the Bible. So you'd have a greater sense of how it sits together. Um, we've been reading the New Testament. That's 27 books total, and they've been written between the middle and the end of the first century. So this is a much shorter time span that we're covering here today, but sure. there are two volumes of history, Luke and Acts, that take yep. up about a quarter of the New Testament, but then you'll have letters from Paul that are like a single page, and you can right. get through very quickly. So here's a very liberating thought. You ready for this? You don't have to understand everything <laughs> to benefit from reading it, okay? okay. Uh, I was talking with a guy, actually, Tom, who's, who's just started coming to our church. He's yeah. not a believer yet, and he decided to join a life group to start you know, reading the Bible. And I I was like, man, I admire his intellectual integrity because a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't believe the Bible. And it's like, have you ever read it? No, I don't want to read it. You know, it's like they reject something they've never engaged with. And so he said, I want to read it for myself. And I said, so how are you enjoying it? And it was fascinating because he said, you know what? I feel like, Pastor Tim, I don't understand half of what I read. You know, that's again, very, very honest. And he said, but it's okay because it's like when my wife makes me drink one of those green health shakes. Uh, She's like a juicer, you know, putting celery and and all that. He says, and, and, you know, she hands it to me and I'm like, what is even in there? She goes, don't worry about it. It's good for you. And when it gets inside, it's going to clean out your insides. And it was funny because he said, that's how I feel like I'm reading the Bible. I don't understand everything (laughs) that got in here. Right. But I believe it's doing something on the inside, you know, kind of, kind of cleansing. And I was like, that's exactly right. That's the spirit of Bible engagement. When you absorb God's word in its raw, unedited form, God begins doing his work, whether you understand that or not. It has a cleansing effect on your soul. And I know a lot of you have actually felt that. At certain points, you have probably read something that caused you to, to question part of your lifestyle or reevaluate a relationship. Mm. And the reality is, out of a deeper devotion to God, that's the Bible working. It's living and it's active. It's mm. God speaking to our heart through his spirit. My wife tried to get me to drink one of those. No way. Not happening. Anyways, <laughs> uh, great. So let's start with the first category here, okay? Questions about Jesus and the Gospels. This first question comes from our friend Jimmy. He says, why does Jesus perform miracles and say, shh, don't tell anyone? But then later on, he's like, go tell everyone. Yeah. What's up with that? <laughs> That's a great question. You ever notice that? Uh, particularly like in the Gospel of Mark, uh, in the first chapter, um, there's a guy with leprosy, right? And Jesus comes yeah. up and he says, you know, be clean. And the guy's like healed. And then Jesus says, send him away at once with a strong warning. See to it that you don't tell this to anyone. You What's figure, well, you'd want everybody to know, would you? Right. you know, why the secrecy? In, in Mark 5, then he meets this little girl. She's 12 years old. She dies. The parents are heartbroken. Mm. And he says, get up. He raises her from the dead. And then it says, Jesus gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. It's like, why wouldn't you tell people about a resurrection? Like, I would be tweeting that to everybody, right? right? And that's like um, passion, compassion and power and all of that. And then he heals a man who's like, you know, deaf and mute. And in Mark 7, it says, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it, right? People were overwhelmed with amazement. It's kind of funny. It's like, what's the deal here? And here's how this works. In the first seven chapters of Mark, The reason Jesus doesn't want publicity is because he hasn't given the full message yet. He's only given half of the gospel because up to this point, he has performed miracles. He's healing the sick. He's fed the hungry. Remember, you know, fish and loaves, all of a sudden happy meals for everybody, all right? (laughs) Healing and happy meals. It's half the message. And you know what? That is part of the gospel. God can miraculously meet your needs, but Jesus didn't want to be seen as just a miracle worker. He didn't preach kind of a health and wealth gospel. You know, all your problems are going to be solved. He said, Jesus said, don't tell anyone until I've given you the full 
picture. I want you to understand the full picture of what I've come to do. In other words, yes, there's resurrection power where you're going to have a new life what God miraculously provides for you. But first, you're going to have to come and die. You're going to have to follow me. And there's a division there in Mark 8, actually, where he begins predicting. He says, I'm going to actually have to be crucified. I'm going to have to die on the cross for, for you. And if you want to follow me, you're going to have to come and die too. You have to give up your life. That's the second part of his message. Right. And it's only after he's crucified on the cross and raised to life that he says, now, go tell everybody. Right. And there's sort of like this ironic twist in Mark 16, isn't there? I mean, the end, all yeah. this time, right, Jesus has been saying, don't tell anyone. But they go blabbing everywhere. And the one time he says, go tell everyone, what do they do? They run, run and hide. Run and hide. That's the tension of the gospel, right? It really, we have a really a message that is a two-parter. It's, it's good news. God right. can heal you mm-hmm. and meet your needs. But bad news, you've got to come and die first. Right. You've got to repent, actually, of your sin and follow him. So understand the Christian faith is a faith that has pain and power. There's death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. That's why Jesus keeps saying, always saying, keep it on the down low for now because he's concerned about our motives for following him. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, you, you don't want people to love you just for what they can get out of you. You want them to love you because they see how much you love them. Because it's very easy to preach, you know, a gospel of health and wealth and happy meals, right? Those sure. are the benefits. Sure. But that Jesus was very strategic about when and why his identity would be revealed. Hmm. That's actually a great lead into the second question here. Someone asked this. How literally are we to take Jesus' radical commands? In other words, he says things like, deny yourself daily, carry your cross, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. How literal are we to take these things? Yeah, you got to understand, in Jesus' mind, the greatness of the kingdom of God, living in that reality, mm. was worthy of like total commitment, okay? Sure. That's why Jesus doesn't talk about like, well, there's salvation, and then there's discipleship, you know, it's, it's just, <laughs> right. follow me. That's mm. the invitation. You remember the rich young man? who comes up to Jesus in Mark 10, he, um, he says, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, say this simple prayer and you'll go to heaven. He doesn't say that, right? <laughs> he, act, the guy, he actually says to the guy, he goes, well, if you follow the commandments, he says, oh yeah, do not murder, do not steal, honor your father and mother. I've done all of that. Right. Now watch this. Jesus looked at him, the scripture says, and loved him. Yeah. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come what? Come Follow me. Follow me. In other words, he's exposing what this man really is holding on to for his salvation, right? He, he's kind of breaking his pride. In other words, the guy says, hey, what do I have to do to get salvation? In other words, I have to do, I'm going to earn this like everything else. I've obeyed the Bible. I've led a moral life. I'm pretty well off. And that's what a lot of people think sure. the invitation is to follow Jesus. But Jesus exposes his true motives by saying, well, why don't you do this? Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then you come follow me. And at this, it says, the man's face fell. Yeah. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Mm. Now, he's not saying rich people go to hell, right. okay? Or, or rich people are bad, not at all. Right. He's just saying, it's harder for you. It's harder if you're well off to follow me. Why? Because if you're well off, you are used to having your physical needs met every moment of your life and you become self-reliant. It's like, why do you, do you ever really feel a need for God? Why do you need God? Mm. When you feel empty, you can just go buy something new. You can take a trip. You can go on a vacation. All those needs that are meant to drive us to God, you typically don't have when you're well off. I wish I knew what you were talking about, Tim. <laughs> you like to struggle that way a little <laughs> yeah, bit, I right? like to struggle that way. In other words, the, the blessing of God all of a sudden becomes a curse, and, and you become self-sufficient and rely right. on your own strength. Yeah. So if this passage jars you, there's mm. a reason for that. Definitely. Jesus is asking, he's saying, hey, what does your money mean to you? Is affluence maybe a barrier to actually following Jesus and trusting him fully? 
I mean, if Jesus asked you, could you give up your house? Could you give up your car? Will you give up your position or your promotion for me? Could you do that? Because your internal reaction will reveal your attitude towards money, whether it's your servant or your master. And Jesus is like, you can't serve both. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he tells this out of love to this guy. Go back to the beginning of verse 21. Jesus looked at him and what? Loved him. In other words, love is willing to give straight talk. It doesn't hedge around the truth. God loves each of us enough to actually challenge us in areas of weakness. And that's what God's word will do. As you begin reading God's word, God's word will begin reading you, right? Mm-hmm. Saying, what is it really going on inside of you, all right? Now, now, does this mean that every single believer needs to, like, sell everything that we have and give to the poor? Probably not everyone, but probably some of you. Hmm. For some of you, here's the best way to do it. I know that when God is speaking to me, a good way, when certain passages unsettle you or cause you that internal angst, often that is the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Out of love, stretching you, calling you to a deeper level of devotion. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of chuckle to myself. Sometimes I get a, uh, a guy coming up to me and say, all right, so Pastor Tom, how do I become a Christian? You know, do I have to give up drinking? Do I have to tithe? Is that the net amount or the gross amount? What's up with that? Do I have to move out of my girlfriend's apartment? All that sort What's of stuff. What's the bare minimum exactly. I have to and do? That's what they're asking. Right. They're basically asking, what is the absolute bare minimum I have to do to yeah. get into heaven? What, what's the least amount of sacrifice required. And that actually reveals something about your heart, right? Because whatever that thing is, what it's saying is that thing is more than Christ in your life. Yeah, and and Jesus is not a used car salesman, right? (laughs) He's not, hey, salvation today, 10% off. I'll throw in discipleship as an optional package. You know, he's he's like, no, no, I want you all in. Mm -hmm. Every part of your heart, especially that part that you're keeping over here, you got to surrender to me. And of course, the irony is that when he returns, we're going to have, you know, we have the struggle now, but we're going to be like, oh my gosh, right. I almost missed it for not giving that up. Yeah. We will laugh at how little in comparison we gave up to the kingdom of God. It's incredible. Okay. One last question here from the gospels and Jesus It's talking about Jesus's second return. A guy asked this in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about his return and the end of days as imminent. Yeah. He ends by saying this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. But here's the deal. Many generations have passed away, and Jesus is not back yet. What's, the, what, what's up with the delay? Yeah, anyone who reads the New Testament, right, you see this. There was this expectation among early Christians that, like, Jesus is coming now. Like, it may be, maybe within the hour or tomorrow morning at the latest right, right, kind of thing. Right. Uh, Paul writes, you know, the night's almost over. Day is almost here. Countless writers kind of mention this sense of urgency. Uh, this came up in my life group. My friend Patrick, I like the way he framed the question. He mm. said this. He said, uh, would the early Christians have been surprised to find that a couple thousand years later, we're still plugging along. Is anyone else getting impatient? Yes. You know? <laughs> I, I think the answer is yes on both accounts. Yes, they would be surprised. And yes, mm. I know I'm getting impatient. Mm. But let's just say a couple things about Jesus' return. First off, it's this. It's a fact that we have never been closer to Christ's return than we are today. This, you, you are in the generation that is now the, officially the closest ever to Jesus' return. Because chron- chronologically, that's, that's just the truth. But you see signs in the world all around you. That's why this comes up. You see wars, famines, natural disasters. You see global turmoil. In fact, I'm hoping to do a series on prophecy in the the next year. Um, But secondly, if you look at the verse that he mentions where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this generation Mm. will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Jesus used the term generation not to to describe an age group, but a type of person. For instance, he said, you know, wicked and adulterous generation. Mm. And, And he was simply saying that, you know, Wickedness and sin is going to be part of the world until I come back. 
The more technical explanation is this phrase, all these things, which right. in the Greek, do you remember this from seminary? What, uh, uh, it's either a ponta tauta or a kudamatata. Yeah. I forget which one. It's one of those. So I'm seminary. Uh, yes, Hakuna Matata. No, Jesus used the Punta Tata. He, he actually was using that to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened 40 years later in 70 AD. So it actually did happen within that generation. But I think whenever you come to passages like this, it is very important that you get the spirit of Jesus's prophecy. Because whenever we talk about the end times or the last days, you got to be careful not to like question God's character or motives. Mm. Like, well, what happened? You know, did he forget about hey, us? Kind of thing. Late. It's just the opposite. Mm. Scripture is very clear that one of the reasons God delays his return is actually out of an obsession with as many people coming to faith in right, Christ as right. possible. Yeah, you know, Paul, uh, actually, no, it was Peter, yeah. wrote in his second letter, he said, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Yeah, he's like, God, <laughs> you, we measure time in, you know, seconds and minutes. God's right. like, I measure it in millennia, <laughs> all right? So his due date is very different from us. Mm-hmm. But in verse 9 of that second Peter, a great reference, it says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Like, he's like, I get how you guys think. But he is what? Let's say this together. He is patient Patience. with you, not wanting anyone, anyone. to perish, but... Everyone, everyone to come yep. to repent. In other words, one of the main reasons yeah. for the delay in Christ's return is God's compassion and outrageous love for all people, right? He doesn't, God isn't like, like, I can't wait to judge people, right? <laughs> like in the Old Testament, the Lord is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. So it's for our benefit because God is waiting to save as many people as possible before Jesus returns. I mean, make it personal. If you were saved in the last 40 days, or the last 40 years. Aren't you glad it wasn't the generation before you, right? Yeah. So understand this about the second coming. The return of Christ is, is certain. It's guaranteed. It's going to be sudden. The Bible says it's going to be like a thief in the night. But in the meantime, our job is to pray like his return will happen tomorrow, mm. but plan like it'll take another 100 years. That's the tension of living in between God's promise and its fulfillment. Awesome. Well, I want to kind of switch gears here a little bit. Sure. I want to talk about Paul and his letters, okay? Because okay? he brings up issues of the culture and church. This is where you get questions about, like, circumcision, women, gays, uh, can an unbeliever marry a believer, all that sort of stuff. We're not going to get to every single one of these, but let's start simple. Circumcision. <laughs> Yeah, I want to ask about to circumcision, okay. okay? What's the deal with circumcision? Paul, in particular, seems obsessed about it. This is what I'd one guy obsessed, wrote, right? Okay. Right. I, I, know, I, I wouldn't say obsessed, okay? But the New Testament definitely mentions it a heck of a lot, especially anything that Paul writes, he's always talking about. And it's confusing, quite frankly, for some of us Gentiles, us non-Jews. Yeah, I think we forget that the first Christians were pretty much all Jews, right? Mm. Jesus is Jewish, and circumcision has a revered place in the Jewish faith and culture, still does today. Sure. Um, I, you guys know what circumcision is? I don't think we have a visual. Do we have a visual? No, no I'm not going to. Ah, no graphics for this one, right? Uh, this is the cutting off of the foreskin, right, of the male, of the male penis. And here's the deal. It, you're like, I think it was just for health and hygiene reasons. It was a sign originally in Genesis of the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 17. It says this. It says, then God said to Abraham, you're to undergo circumcision. It'll be a sign of the covenant or contract, the agreement between me and you. Now, what was that? He said, if you follow me, I'm going to make you the father mm. of many nations. You will have so many children, descendants as numerous of the stars. There's just one thing. I want you to wound the very part of your body mm. that will be necessary to make good on that promise. Yeah. 
because I want people to see it's going to happen supernaturally through me, right. not through your own natural strength. I mean, that's, it's an incredible symbol of trust and faith. Yeah, I don't got that kind of faith. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so Abraham actually celebrated the first bris or brit mala. Bris actually means covenant, okay? Yeah. And ever since, every Jewish baby boy is typically circumcised on the eighth day. Yeah. Um, Colleen and I, our neighbors are actually from Tel Aviv. They're Israeli. And uh, they had a baby boy, and they said, hey, we want to invite you to the bris. It's going to happen right in the living room. It was amazing. We were the only Gentiles there. We were the tallest people in the room. And we came, and we, got, and we it was so cool. We were totally honored. Let me tell you, it was a very <laughs> powerful experience. All of their relatives flew in from Israel for this. And the oldest man, who was 92, he sat in the chair of Elijah, and he held this eight-day-old baby boy as a symbol of this being passed down from generations. And it was amazing because the, the Moyel, who actually performs it, says, today, your baby boy, your son, is entering the tribe of Abraham. Mm. He is now saying, I'm part of the chosen people of, of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it was a very, very powerful yeah. thing. So circumcision was a defining mark, still is, for Jewish people, that they're part of, the, of God's people. In fact, if you aren't circumcised, you're considered cut off from God's people. Right. That's the Old Testament. The smash-up happens in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus. Mm. Because Jesus was, fulfilled the law. But Jesus said this, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the what? New New covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. In other words, he's saying, with my death, there's a whole new contract that is no longer based on your ability to obey the law or perform rituals. It's going to be based on my perfect life as a sacrifice for your sins on the cross. I will be the one who gets wounded and bleeds for you. And if you put your trust in that, Anyone can enter the family of God. So Jesus taught that this external symbol is now going to be this inner reality in followers' hearts. And that's why Paul writes in Romans, he says, a man's a Jew Hmm. if he is one, what? Inwardly. And circumcision now is circumcision of the heart Hmm. by the spirit. In other words, God's going to cauterize the the, the most sensitive part of you, not by the written code. In other words, membership into God's family is now by like this internal heart relationship, yeah. not like this external yeah. religious rituals or anything like that. And all whose hearts are right with God through Jesus Christ yeah. can come into the family, right? That's what, that's what you're that's talking about. That's the new about. covenant, exactly. And, and, and this new covenant was actually considered the good news. So Gentiles began putting their faith in Jesus Christ left and right. That's what causes the smash up mm. in the New Testament. That's why you see this so much obsessed about, okay? Because certain Jews began teaching that to become a Christian, you had to do two things. Mm-hmm. You had to trust Jesus, and then you had to get circumcised. And women and children were like, okay. But (laughs) Gentile men are sitting out in the car, and they're like, um. Let me pray about it. I'm going to pray about this, you know. Like, you got to have surgery to be saved, right? Like, I mean, this is not an exactly inviting pitch to church membership. Right, right. right. Um, But it it really placed this barrier or hurdle to salvation because it says, you know what? you got to add to what Jesus did on the cross. And Mm. so Paul attacks that. Any chance he gets, he says, that is not it. Jesus bled once and for all. You don't have to do anything or add anything to it. You just give him your heart. And that was hard. That was hard for observant Jews to accept. I bet the Gentiles loved it, though. Yeah, the men were like, woo. So in a lot of Paul's letters, you're going to see this. He's trying to shift the focus away from circumcision, the old covenant, Mm -hmm. onto Christ. He actually says, in Christ, you also were circumcised. in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by who? Done by Christ. Do you right. see the, the shift here in covenants? And, and that's interesting history, but how does that actually apply to us like today? Well, yeah, first thing, good news, anyone can join God's family, right, mm-hmm. without surgery. Okay. Paul actually said here there's neither 
Greek nor Jew, that doesn't matter anymore. Circumcised or uncircumcised, that doesn't matter anymore. Barbarian, people from Long Island, right? (laughs) Anybody, right? Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So Mm -hmm. so the good news, Paul's like, Jesus breaks down, you know, all barriers of ethnicity, race, religious background, doesn't matter. Anyone who comes to Jesus can join the family of God. That's why the news was so good. But it's also a warning to say, hey, don't add on legalistic stuff to faith in Christ. Yeah. You know, some people tell you that. Like, well, to be a Christian, you've got to pray a certain amount. You've got to go to Mass every day. Right. They get all legalistic about right. the whole thing. You've got to give a certain you know, percent. That's a shift back to the Old Testament covenant, yes. a religion of man, not a fresh relationship with the living Christ. Well, you said it right there. I, I feel like the human tendency is to naturally add on yeah. to our salvation. Yes. So whatever Christ has done, we would just want to add on like, like we merit it or something. Yep. But the thing is, whenever we add on to whatever Christ is doing, we're actually taking away from what Christ has done, right? So yeah. there's no surgery necessary to be saved by Jesus. Amen. No. <laughs> no. But ironically, of course, today, modern times, most baby boys are circumcised for health and hygienic reasons. So it's kind of a moot point. Awesome, awesome. Well, I know that... All the men here, we all appreciate Paul and his teaching. Let's, uh, that's awesome. But let's just be honest right now. The Apostle Paul offends a lot of women. Right. Dude, he upsets women just flat out, okay? Because we got <laughs> a lot of questions from you ladies here, right here in our church, with questions that went something like this. I'm struggling with Paul's list of restrictions on women. He says we're not allowed to speak in church, talk about covering our hair, how to dress, etc., etc. This makes a modern-day Christ-following woman like myself scratch her head. Help. And, And what she's saying there is basically whenever you read Paul's letters, this is like one of the major top one, two, three major beefs. In fact, you actually did an entire message on this months ago, didn't you? Yeah, I did a a full-length message on this called Women in the Church in Mm -hmm. our FAQ series two years ago. I put a link to that in your notes today. If you want to watch that, we actually interviewed a number of female leaders in our church on stage. So uh, check that out at liquidchurch.com. But briefly, I can kind of summarize this. Because the the tripwire passages, you know, are, are like 1 Timothy 2. Um, I think a lot of women read and they hear it kind of in a redneck voice, like, a woman should learn in quietness, <laughs> full submission. Uh, you know, I'll permit a woman, a teacher, to have authority over a man. She must be a silent woman. I'm watching NASCAR. Be quiet, you know. So we, like, we hear it that way, you know, in our modern minds. And, yeah. and that's what people say. Oh, that's what's wrong with the church. You know, for all the talk of the Bible being inspired, mm. it's really outdated. It's, it's kind of misogynist. This is the 21st century, silent and submissive. Like, mm. it seems out of step with the time. And the question is, what do you do when you encounter verses like this, right? Because on the surface, those words do seem pretty kind of, you know, oppressive. And the reality is Bible bigoted. Mm. The reality is, whenever you come to a passage like this, you have to ask, is this descriptive of a local situation or is it prescriptive? Is there a timeless universal principle for us to apply to our lives? Context is decisive. If you do a little background research to understand the the cultural context in which these words were written, you would know. First century Jewish women, okay, were second class citizens. This is just the, this is the context that was written legally for thousands of years. Jewish kids grew up being taught that man was master and a woman should be subordinate in the home and the temple. Her role was just to serve and obey without question. Mm. That's what the law required. Women actually received very little education. Uh, the majority of them were illiterate, and few had legal rights. Their testimony was not admissible in a court of law, okay? And this is kind of crazy. In one rabbinic school, I was looking this up, a man could legally divorce his wife if she burned his dinner. But, 
How's that for a happy meal, right? It's That's not like in my house. So this is a hyper patriarchal culture that Paul is writing in. And, and check this out. This is, this is stunning. Every devout, God-fearing Jewish man had to recite a prayer first thing in the morning. It was called the Baraka. He would get down on his knees and he would pray, God, thank you for not making me a Gentile. Thank you for not making me a slave. And thank you, God, for not making me a woman. I want you to imagine you're married. You wake up. The first thing you hear your husband saying in the morning is thanking God he's not you. Mm. And then it dawns on you. A Gentile can convert. A slave can be set free. But you could never stop being a woman. Mm. That's the culture, the historic context that Christianity was born into. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, God handpicks an unmarried peasant teenage girl named Mary to introduce his son to the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, and as a daddy of three girls, I love the fact that all throughout his ministry, Jesus was constantly radically violating social taboos against women, right? I mean, two of Jesus' closest friends were actually women, Mary and Martha, right? I mean, yeah, they were in the inner circle. They helped fund his, 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 uh, his ministry with their yeah. generosity. And Jesus was always, you know, he's letting women, you know, let down her hair, wash his feet. They can touch me. Uh, you know, he said, look at this woman, the way she prays. That's a model of prayer for you. Right. Look at the way that one gives. She's so generous. I wish you were that generous. That was radical. A woman was not permitted to read, let alone be the example of faith. And yeah. most significantly, when Jesus is raised from the dead, who is the first to find about news of his resurrection? A woman. Yep. He says, I want you to go tell the disciples. In other words, that wasn't even a reliable witness in a court of law. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you the apostle to the apostles. So yeah. all throughout his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus is always teaching and loving women, includes them in vital positions in his ministry. That's what caused the game-changing words in Galatians 3 to be written. Mm -hmm. There is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. This was a revolutionary, radical idea that turned the ancient world on its head. No one was talking like this. They had never heard of this idea before. Ethnic equality is not Jew or Greek? No. Socioeconomic, slavery-free? No. Gender equality, male or female, you're not competing with each other. You're all one in Christ Jesus. That set the ancient world on fire. That message of freedom in Christ gave women a new status Mm -hmm. that said they were actually equal in worth, value, and dignity, in respect, in the eyes of God. See, modern minds, we say equality means sameness. You're just a mirror image of me. We do the same thing. I can do it better than you. Mm -hmm. That's not biblical equality. equality, It's not about competing with each other. It's complementing each other. Like a right hand complements a left, right? They work together in tandem to make the other more effective. We actually need each other. And that gospel of Jesus gave women a newfound respect because their husbands who converted to Christianity, they said, so now how do I have to treat my wife now that I follow Jesus? And they pointed to the cross. They said, well, what did Jesus do for his wife, the church? He died for her, baby, okay? That's your job now. That's what headship means. You're willing to actually lay down your life for your wife. So the cross of Jesus turned this patriarchal culture on its head because now it means sacrifice and responsibility for the woman. Mm -hmm. And do you know who wrote those controversial words? Mm -hmm. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, you're all one. The apostle Paul. (laughs) In fact, look at it. Just keep it up on the screen. It's a direct rebuke of that morning prayer. Thank God you didn't make me a Gentile. Thank God you didn't make me a slave. Thank God you didn't make me a woman. He says, I'm turning the whole thing over. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus, there's no more gender war. Amen? That idea was world-changing. 
Because faith in Christ gave women a new status, a new respect, and a brand new opportunity to learn. Watch this. 1 Timothy, our controversial verse, right? (laughs) What do the first four words say? Let's just read this together. A woman should learn. Stop right there, okay? Because in the 21st century, we go right past you like, and she's got to be quiet. She's got to, you know, be submissive. I hate all that kind of stuff. In the first century, a Jewish man wouldn't get past those first four words. He said, a woman should learn. What kind of liberal nonsense is radical? Are you telling me we're going to let women in the church? Mm. We're going to let them read the Holy Scriptures? They're going to actually be educated? They... For centuries, they stood outside the temple. And now, yeah. yeah, now you're telling me, teach them the scriptures? This Jesus thing is too liberal for my blood. Right, right. Guys, that's how far we are from the culture and context of the first century, okay? So this is just a reality check for you. Mm. Anytime you or I cherry pick a verse and run it through a 21st century filter of the gender wars, we miss the big idea. Yeah. Look at the rest of 1 Timothy in its context. It actually says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. What's the context? Paul's writing to Timothy. Do you remember where Timothy yeah, was a pastor? Yeah, first Timothy was a, a pastor, young guy in Ephesus. Ephesus. Ephesus was known for one thing, pagan worship. Do you know what temple? What mm. Greek god or goddess? The temple of Artemis. Mm. In other words, the only point of reference women had goddess. was yeah. goddess worship a woman ruling over the entire city. And Paul's saying, we're going to do this a little different than the pagans do, all right? Because of their background, the women in the new church, just as formed, they have no education, they have no schooling, so they're very susceptible to false teaching. That's the number one reason Paul wrote 1 Timothy, to combat false teaching, all right? Mm -hmm. They're not through any fault of their own, but they were just brand new to the faith. And he said, you don't have any training at this point, so here's the deal, ladies. I want you to take the posture of a learner, okay? In, In quietness, the Greek actually just means peaceable demeanor. You, you, need to, you need to learn. And what's more, I want you to knock off what you're, what, what you're doing, which is causing a distraction. A lot of women in Ephesus at this moment were dressing like hoochie mamas, okay? If, if, look at this, verses 9 and 10. Again, the context, Paul says, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold pearls or, or, or expensive clothes. Again, these are brand new believers and these women who've been suffocating for, for decades, for centuries, now are like, we're free in Christ. Woo! We're putting in weaves. We're rocking Tory Burch. <laughs> They're strutting their stuff in men's faces, okay? Tim, I'm, I'm shocked. Women showing a little skin to grab men's attention? Thank God this is no longer relevant, okay? I just, I just... <laughs> so, under, so Paul's not trying to control women, okay, or shut them up, all right? right. He's making a larger point about Christian virtue. Mm. He's like, hey... Since you're no longer defined by men, but by Christ, what God thinks of you, you no longer have to, you know, put on, you know, uh, Manolo Blahniks, but adorn yourself with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. That's liberating. It's freedom in Christ. Christ is now your master, not man, so you don't have to earn his approval or attention. Yeah, you know, and that really is liberating, isn't it, women? I mean, imagine if you woke up tomorrow and you were so satisfied in your identity in Christ that God looks at you and that he loves you. No matter what you're wearing, no matter what you look like, you don't have to try to impress any man. Man looks at the, at the outside, but God actually looks at the, the heart. heart. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's empowering, and that's the cultural mm. context that Paul's writing this letter to Timothy. So, so whenever, here's the principle. Whenever you come to a passage like this, context is decisive. Yeah. You have to say, is this descriptive or prescriptive? Mm-hmm. Is it describing a local situation in that local church, or is it prescribing a larger universal principle that's a timeless application for all believers? And this has a timeless application. The first is, 
No hoochie mamas in church, all right? It's very easy. It's like, hey, ladies, modesty, propriety, okay? Secondly, he's telling Timothy, hey, don't put people in leadership positions who are immature in the faith. Mm. If they're brand new to the faith, if they don't have miles on the odometer, you don't want to put them in a leadership position. And that principle is timeless. In fact, it guides our philosophy of leadership here at Liquid. Um, We have a complementarian view of women. We are blessed with a whole host of brilliant, educated, trained, and talented women in key leadership roles Mm. um, at Liquid, including Hostel Siegel. She oversees our family ministry. Uh, Rebecca Wheeler, Assimilation. Wendy Wendy oversees outreach. Janet, Susie. Janet, yeah, exactly. Oversees our cause and kids. These are intelligent, gifted women who influence our church's ministry and direction, and we're blessed to serve alongside of them. And in fact, I did interview three of them uh, in our FAQ uh, message on women in the church. Again, that link is in your notes, and if you want to learn more of that, I'd I'd love for you to hear their voice. I want Mm. you to hear their experience of serving in the church of Jesus firsthand. Take a look at that. So good. Well, here's the deal. We are running out of time, but if I don't ask this one final question, I will get slammed with emails, okay? So here it is. What is your church's position on gays? Are you LGBT friendly? Okay, that, yeah. <laughs> I also did another, I, I did two messages on that in that FAQ series. So mm-hmm. just go to liquidchurch.com, type in gay debate. I got a whole thing on that. Okay. Um, first off, I always, I'm kind of curious, like when people go, are you gay friendly? Like, <laughs> right. we're friendly to everybody. Like, you know, there's a, like, we're not jerks to people. But I understand that this is a serious issue. And I think it's the, the divisive dividing issue of our generation, of our time. Yeah. It has moved very quickly in our culture. It's very polarizing. Mm-hmm. Even when people say, what's your, they'll say, what's your stance on, you know, uh, you know your stance, like you're ready to fight right. kind of thing. Very LG, Yeah, LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Sometimes people will add a Q for queer or questioning people mm-hmm. who aren't sure. And, and here's, here's the deal. Um, rather than rehash the, the messages I've done on this, I, or, or even just give you a sound bite that could be misunderstood and, and kind of distorted and used like ammo, I'd like to change the dynamic. Because I, I, I want to ask a question of our gay attendees, because at every campus, we have people who are somewhere along the lines in that community, LGBT, sure. who yeah. don't know what they are, they're struggling. Here, just hear my heart on this, all right, as your pastor, okay? Would you be willing to come to my house for coffee this April hmm. so that we can have a conversation about this? Because I could just give you, you know, a bald-faced answer and say, okay, yeah, just turn to Romans and say that. But I actually like to change the dynamic and actually begin a dialogue. So it's not me just sitting up here telling you, well, this is what the Bible said, and actually just to hear your story so I can understand that. Because I'm a flaming heterosexual, um, and what that means is I have different challenges sexually in following Jesus, and I would like to understand what yours are, and I have miles to go. And I like want to be the, the best pastor I can to not only, you know, people who are gay or they're struggling, or maybe you have a relative uh, you know, a, a brother or sister or something right, struggling that, with that. Yep. And they want to follow Jesus sincerely. And here's the deal. For most of my life, I have seen this Bible on this issue used as a weapon. Yeah. It is used for one of two things. You either confront people with it or you condemn them with it. Yeah. And I think that breaks God's heart. I really do. I think it keeps a lot of earnestly seeking people from Jesus. So instead of condemnation or confrontation, I'm like, could we actually just have a conversation <laughs> about that and, and honor each other? Um, obviously, if you've been to Liquid, you can see from today, we have a very high view of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, we are theologically conservative. That, that simply means as a follower of Jesus, I hold 100% to everything that he's taught on the issue. Two things on, on that, right? Uh, Jesus, he affirms at all times the biblical ideal of marriage, one man, one woman for life. He affirms that. Sure. But on the subject of homosexuality, he is silent. He actually doesn't mention it. Hmm. Which doesn't mean that he didn't have an opinion and he didn't affirm Scripture. Listen to me. It doesn't mean he didn't affirm Scripture. 
It just means it wasn't on his top 10 list of sins. What was on his top 10 list, however, were self-righteous religious people who liked to point to the sins of others that they knew nothing about and slam them with the Bible. That's on his top 10 list. Yeah, that's true. So I want to reverse this dynamic a little bit and say, hey, could we actually reach out and take a different approach to conversation? I'd love to hear what led you to this church, mm, yeah. um, what you're wrestling with, because this is a complex issue. It's a very complex issue. I mean, th- that phrase, gay, is no longer a simple label. No, I've, ta- I've talked to people who are they're struggling with same-sex attraction, yeah. people who are openly practicing homosexuality. I've talked to you know, lesbian moms, who, their partner, and they've got a couple of kids, same-sex attracted people who aren't practicing because they say that's what God's calling me to. Yeah. Again, go to uh, liquidchurch.com, type in the gay debate. I did an interview with a guy in our congregation, yeah, absolutely fascinating, I remember, I remember with Ron. Yep. But we have people all across that spectrum in our cities, and that question has come up in life groups. So I want you to hear my heart on that. I would just like to invite you to friendship and conversation, hear your story, and dessert at my house. So email Janet. That's my assistant, Janet, at liquidchurch.com. Notice she's got two N's in her name. <laughs> And uh, I'd love for you to come and I just hear your heart and how we can help minister to your families and take the next step towards Jesus Christ. Awesome. Last question. Can I come? Yes. <laughs> Whenever there's free food, you're there, right? Hey, can we thank you. Pastor Tim here? Hey, Good great stuff. to be Thank you, guys. Awesome questions. You guys got awesome questions. Love it. Awesome. Awesome. Great questions. Well, let's pray. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, so much. It's just so exciting, Lord, to be a church that's into your word, that's reading your word. And I, I just, I look back to, the, to your own words in Deuteronomy that says, the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed to us and to our children forever that we may follow all his words. Father, as questions come up, Father, we know that you have all the answers. And I just pray right now that you would give us all the answers. But Lord, we know that you do it in your time and that you ultimately, you, You are the ultimate answer, Lord. So we want to look to you, Father. So I just thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your spirit here. And I just pray for more of you in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com. Or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.